Go ahead and turn in in them to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We are going to continue where we left off uh, just a couple weeks ago uh, in verse 8. And I'm going to read chapter 2 verses 8 through 10 this morning. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Right, this is the word of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your power at work in us to make once dead sinners come alive to you, to know you, to be forgiven by you, to have a saving relationship with you forever. Father, thank you for this reminder that we need to hear often that all of this is by your grace, that all of this is a free gift which you have given us. But Lord, help us to know that this gift means that we are alive, we are new creations by your Holy Spirit, and we are alive to do what you have called us to do. I pray that we would see the joy in that this morning, and that we would be stirred up to walk in the way that you have called us. So Lord, now we ask that by your spirit, you would open our eyes to behold the many wonderful things you have prepared for us here. I pray that we would taste and see that you are good as we meditate on your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. About a... A decade ago, when I was uh, working on active duty um, at Stratcom, uh, probably when I probably I probably should have been working more, um, but I found myself in regular theological conversation with a very dear uh, and close Roman Catholic friend. Uh, we just loved to spend our time discussing all of our many differences and trying to convince one another to come over 
to the light. But it often seemed, maybe you've had a similar experience, it often seemed that the conversation would inevitably just circle back to this one place where I would say, you know, what I don't understand about you, what I don't understand about you all, is why you insist on works being a necessity to remain in God's grace if it says so clearly that God's grace is a gift. If eternal life is a free gift of God in Christ Jesus, don't you know what Ephesians 2, 8 says? I would often say to him. Don't you know what Ephesians 2, 8 says? That we are saved by grace. This is not of yourselves. This is not a matter of works. And often his reply would go something like this. Ah, but read on. Read on to verse 10. What does it say? For you are God's workmanship created in Christ for good works. Gotcha. Which he has prepared beforehand that we should, we should walk in them. And then if he was really feeling good that day, he might say, what about James 2.24? You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And when I preached through the book of James, we kind of talked through this, how these two things work together. And he would say to me, what I don't understand about you evangelical types is how you say, all you have to do is believe and then you can do whatever you want. And sometimes I was like, ah, oh, he always goes there. Why does he always go there? And it made me think and scratch my head. And I, of course, had a comeback for that as well. And that's part of what the sermon is about this morning. But as I said, maybe you found yourself in similar conversations where you wonder, why do they insist on works to save? And they say, how come you guys say that you just believe and you can do whatever you want? Maybe you've seen a lot of people in your life with a, what I would call believe it and leave it kind of faith. All you have to do to be saved is just believe. And now that you believe, you can leave all that other Bible stuff to the more serious Christians who really want to follow Jesus. This morning, this morning my aim is not to, to give a, a big lecture on the differences between us and Roman Catholics. I just, I trust that by presenting the word to you as it says it, then you will come to understand what is the truth about God's grace to save us and the role of works in our lives. But I want to make these three points very clear this morning. And this is one of those sermons that, that I really hope, and as I'm praying about it, as I'm studying about it this week, I'm just like, I want nothing more than for every single person in this room, everybody that comes here regularly, everybody who's a member of this church, I don't want there to be any confusion on these three points. Like, I want to be able to ask you in the foyer after church today, maybe next Sunday after you've had time to forget it, I want to ask you, and I want you to, to be able to tell me these. I don't want there to be any confusion. So number one, I want you to know that salvation is, in fact, the gracious work of God alone. Salvation is the gracious work of God alone. It's nothing that we do to save ourselves. Holy the grace of God. 
Number two, I want you to know that the way that we receive his salvation, the way we receive that grace, the way that we become partakers in that grace, the way we receive that salvation is, in fact, through faith in Christ Jesus. The way we receive that salvation is through faith in Christ Jesus. And then finally this. This is perhaps the one that trips us up a little bit. Saving faith cannot help but bear the fruit of walking in the works of God. Saving faith cannot help but bear the fruit of walking in the works of God. For the past two weeks prior to uh, Chris preaching last week, which, by the way, thank you, Chris, for a powerful and I would, I would say a very relevant message to what we're looking at here this morning. But for the previous two weeks, we had been uh, looking at examining this idea of resurrection power. What is this, this power that God has worked when he raised Christ from the dead, and, and Paul is praying that we would come to know that same resurrection power in our own lives, the power that, that raised him, that we would be raised up with him, and the power that seated him in the heavenlies above all rulers and authorities, that we have also, by his power, been seated in the heavenlies with him, that we would come to know this resurrection power, that we who were once dead... The Bible says we were dead in our sins and transgressions by the power of God have been made alive in Christ. You know, there can only be two types of people in this world. There are only two types of people in this world right now, spiritually speaking, those who remain spiritually dead, those who are still dead in their sins and transgressions, and then those who have been made alive to God. Who are the spiritually dead? We talked about those zombies, people who are walking yet spiritually dead. The spiritually dead are those who have no real interest in God himself or in his son, Jesus Christ, in, in that they don't really care to follow his word. They don't care to worship him. They, they really have no love for him. None of that. They're simply, as Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 said, 1 through 3 said, they are following the course of this world. They're just swimming with the current of this world. They're following, they're under the control of the prince of the power of the air. They're under the control of the evil one. And they are being led by whatever their fleshly cravings and passions tell them to do. Somebody who is not interested to do what God has called them to, or to do, to do what God's will for us is, but simply to follow the cravings and passions of their flesh. And then there are those, by contrast, who are alive in Christ. Those who are alive to God, those who are enlivened by His Holy Spirit as new, born-again creations. They love him and they have within them this desire to follow him and to worship him and to, to bear good fruit that reflects his character and his holiness. They see life in his word when they open up the scriptures. They see that there is life there for them and they pursue fellowship with him through prayer. 
So if you understand all this, two types of people, dead and then those who are alive, one of the things you will eventually ask yourself is, what can someone who is dead do to make themselves alive? Just think about this in the physical world. What can someone who is dead do to make themselves alive? Absolutely nothing. The only way that we can be rescued from this condition of spiritual death is if God makes us alive. It's his power. It's his divine initiative. It's him. He is the one who breathes his life into us by his Holy Spirit to make us come alive as his new creation. So then, what have you done to deserve you're being made alive in Christ. What have you done to deserve his grace? That's right, absolutely nothing. If you had, it would, by its very definition, no longer be grace. What is grace? Something that we are given that we do not deserve. So the first thing I want you to understand and be 100% absolutely clear on is that God's salvation which includes the full package of his forgiveness of sins. Jesus went to the cross to die for your sins. His redemption, he purchased you for himself out of slavery. His eternal inheritance, which only he can give you. His Holy Spirit, and yes, even the works that he's given you to do in his name. All of this is only by his grace. Think about the giving and receiving of, of any gift, any gift that you might receive in life. If, if on Christmas I were to hand my son an, an envelope and in that envelope there were tickets to go to the Super Bowl. Here I have used my purchasing power to buy these tickets for him. I've taken the initiative to obtain them myself. I've even prepared a way for him to be able to get there and to enjoy them. He has done absolutely nothing. If my son were then to turn to me and say, Dad, thank you, here's $50. I know it's not much, but it's all I have. I wanna pay for these tickets. Not only does that attempt to turn the gift into a transaction, but it's also about $10,000 short of what he needs, and probably even more than that with how astronomical those prices have become. Not only that, but he, being in his current state as a minor, doesn't even have the means to procure any transportation to get there. In other words, he's utterly unfit to get himself to the Super Bowl. He's not of age and he has insufficient funds. Well, in an infinitely greater way, we are utterly unfit to work ourselves into eternal life and make ourselves worthy of fellowship with a perfectly holy God as those who are sinners incompatible with that fellowship. God has done it all. Remember two weeks ago, but God, being rich in mercy and great in love, he made us alive together with him. That's the issue of grace. And just to be sure that Paul is going to get it into our thick 
proud schools because we want to know that we've done something. We want to know that we're worthy in some way just to make sure that he drives this point home. He doubles down. He like literally doubles down Two follow on statements. Just if you weren't clear enough, he says, number one, by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, or this is not literally of yourselves. This is not of your own doing. Again, what can a dead person do to make themselves come alive? Nothing. This is not of your own doing. Romans 9, 16 says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The second statement he says, as he doubles down here, is it is the gift of God. Uh, This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We're going to look more at the relationship here in just a little bit between faith and works. But here Paul is making the point, if it were something you were to do, then that would allow you to be able to say, look at my achievement. Look at what I have done. Look at how worthy I am to have attained a level of righteousness that God will accept me to join his heavenly team. No, Paul says. In terms of there being any merit before God, because of all of the sin that is in us, the scriptures tell us all our righteous deeds, apart from them being from God, all our righteous deeds, the Bible says, are like a polluted Garment, Isaiah 64, 6. God has saved us in order that it might be known before all of the universe that he is the one who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And we see this repeated over and over again in Ephesians chapter 1. To the praise of his glory, according to the riches of his grace, according to the riches of his kindness, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. That is why he has saved us. You are saved by God's grace, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no man may boast. Now, it's point number one. If it's by God's grace, and yet we understand that God's grace is not just somehow applied universally to everyone in the world, like Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of the sins of the world, and all of a sudden, poof, everybody was good in God's sight. We understand that, right? It's not applied universally. There must be some instrument, kind of using a technical term here, there must be some instrument by which we would receive or walk in or obtain access To that grace. And here's where these next two important words come into play. For you, for by grace you have been saved through faith. The way we receive God's salvation is through faith in Christ Jesus. So salvation is by God's grace. Alone, we get that, but the way in which we partake in it, the way in which we receive that grace is through faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 2.16 says, We know that a person is not justified, that is, not made righteous, is not justified by works of the law, but 
through faith in Jesus Christ. Or as Romans chapter 5 verse 1 puts it, Therefore, since we have been justified, made righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace, this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, here's the important thing. What do we mean when we say faith? What does Paul mean when he says faith? What does the scripture, what do the scriptures mean when they talk about faith? And here's another place where people can get very tripped up. Please understand this this morning. Faith is not blind hope that something will turn out good. You know, the, the modern way that faith is used, you just got to have faith. You just got to believe that things are going to be better in the end. Faith is not like that. Faith, biblical faith, is also not simple believism. The same root word that you'll, you'll see in verses like John 3.16, whosoever believes, that's the same word that we see, the same root word whenever we see faith. So if you think of John 3.16 and you think whosoever believes and you're thinking, I'm just going to believe right here that Jesus died for my sins and that I'm good, got what I need, I'm good. It's not, it's, it's whosoever faiths, whosoever has faith in Jesus. So come back to those Super Bowl tickets for just a minute. Let's say that my son were to open up that envelope and now he, he sees the tickets and he examines them very closely because it looks too good to be true. And he says, nice try, Dad, and doesn't believe it. And he thinks it's a joke. And so he just throws the tickets in the trash can. Well, that clearly would be a lack of belief, right? He, doesn't, he simply just doesn't even believe that these are what they are. We know that that's certainly not faith. We know it must be we must include actual belief that this is real. He would first have to believe that they're real, and he would first have to believe that his dad is capable of getting him to the stadium and getting him through the gate so he could actually enjoy the game. But now let's take it a step further. Let's say he opens the envelope, and he sees the tickets, and this time he gets really excited. He believes that these really are tickets to the Super Bowl and he even says, thank you, because that's what good little boys and girls do at Christmas time. And he tells his friends at school even, I'm going to the Super Bowl. But then as the day approaches, as he begins to think about everything that that's going to entail, he starts to waver just a little bit. You know, I'm not really sure I want to fly on an airplane, and I don't really like crowds and big cities, and I think I'd rather just stay at home. So now he's seen the gift. He's believed that his dad has really and truly purchased these tickets, and he has prepared the way for him. And he even believes that his dad has his best interest and his joy in mind for him, and yet, counting the cost... He settles to remain right where he is. In other words, he's not willing to place his trust in his father or in his father's plan for him. So the instrument called faith, by which we receive this free gift of salvation, 
we know is not merely just belief in a thing. It's not merely even belief that that thing is a good thing. But true biblical faith is fully entrusting your life to the one in whom your salvation, forgiveness, redemption, righteousness, eternal life, Holy Spirit, the full inheritance of a son of God, entrusting your life to the one in whom every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is found. You think about this, if saving faith were simply a matter of believing in a package of truths, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which it must include that, but if it were simply a matter of believing those facts, then even Satan and his demons would have saving faith. Because they were there. They know what happened. They know Jesus went to the, the cross. They know that Jesus rose from the dead. They know where Jesus is seated right now. But we know they are certainly not saved in any sense. If saving faith were simply about believing that the truth about Jesus is generally good for you, that would be a step further than the demons. That would be a step further than Satan to believe the truth about Jesus, that it is good for you. And that's all it took. Then I don't think Jesus would have ever challenged the rich young man who was looking for eternal life specifically. Challenged him by saying, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. To which the rich man went away sad because he couldn't do it. Saving faith is knowing the truth. It's believing that it will in fact save you. And then it's trusting that truth with your life. And you can insert for truth here, Jesus Christ. Knowing Jesus, knowing what he did for you, believing, in fact, that that is the only way that you can be saved, to have your sins forgiven, but then trusting him with your life. You could look at an airplane you could watch that airplane take off and land, take off and land, and you could say, I believe that that airplane will take me to my destination. But if you never get on the plane, then what is your faith in that plane, really? What is your word that you believe that that airplane can take you to your destination? It's really no different than the one who doesn't believe at all. Understand there's no separate category of a non-trusting believer in Jesus Christ, a non-trusting professor of Jesus Christ, and a more serious trusting believer in Jesus Christ. There's no separate category of Christian in the saved sense and a follower of Jesus Christ. Either Jesus is your Lord in whom you trust or he isn't. Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There are going to be people who say, I believed in him. I believed that all that stuff that happened was true. I even called him Lord a few times, and yet they did not trust him. They did not trust him. Faith. They did not trust him 
with their life. This is what saving faith looks like, to entrust your life to Christ Jesus. And this is not mere intellectual belief. This is the instrument by which we all become partakers in God's grace. If you are alive in Christ today, the way that you know this, John says uh, in 1 John, he says, I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. And, And how can you know that you have eternal life? Are you concerned to obey his will for you? Do you want to follow his word? Do you want to abide? Are you abiding in his teaching? Do you love him? Do you love him more than the world? I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. You could say, I write these things so that you may know that you have faith, that you have saving faith. And that brings me to the final point this morning. Someone who has been created anew by God in Christ will by nature bear the fruit of walking in his works. Remember I said at the beginning that saving faith cannot help but bear the fruit of walking in the works of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. For we are God's, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. While we must understand we are not saved by our good works, we must know that we are saved unto good works. We are saved in order to do the works that God has prepared for us to do. Someone who has been made alive, someone who's been created by God anew in Christ is someone who works out of what God has worked into them. As Philippians 2, 13 and 14 puts it, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his Good pleasure. Nominal Christians, that is, someone who is a Christian in name only, someone who is a, a professor but not actually a possessor of the Holy Spirit, might think in terms like this What is the bare minimum that I need to do in order to be saved? You see the irony in that? What is the bare minimum I need to do? (laughs) They're actually looking for like, it's grace alone. So what is the bare minimum I need to do? What work can I accomplish? Now, they wouldn't say it like that. But what is the bare minimum I need to do? Can I, can I pray? Is there a prayer that I can pray? Is there a, a way that I can walk up the aisle at the end of a service and talk to the pastor and get my name on a card. Maybe if I were to, to get baptized, is there something I can do so that I can just kind of get on with my life and make sure I check the get out of hell free box? Do you see anything wrong with this? Do you see anything wrong with that mentality? How can one who is created in Christ, it says we are his workmanship, how can somebody who is created in Christ not at least in time, over time, bear the fruit of the Spirit of Christ in him or her. The one who has made them alive. The fruit of the Spirit whose ministry is to put sin to death. 
whose ministry is to guide into all truth, whose ministry is to build up the body of Christ, the church, by manifesting himself through gifts. Chris reminded us last week, a tree bears fruit. It's the nature of a tree. Go back and listen to his message from last week. A bird flies. It's the nature of a bird. And a Christian, one who is in Christ, and one in whom Christ lives by nature, lives to please God. I know somebody who recently landed a job on the training staff of a top five football team in the nation, a team that is undefeated right now. Things are going as great as they ever have, at least in in several years. Right now, no one is having to coax him to get up in the morning to go to work because he's thinking, I'm a Washington Husky. This is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. I want to do what I have been called to do. He is living his dream, so to speak. And although I, assure, I can assure you that he works very hard, he labors at his craft, the esteemed opportunity itself entices him to want to pour all of himself into this labor. This is how, in a sense, it is to be in the service of God and in fellowship with Jesus Christ. Erica reminded me this week of the words uh, from that movie, Chariots of Fire, love that movie, love even more, the story of of Eric Little, but that the words that were attributed to him, I don't think he actually said them, but the famous words, when I run, I feel his pleasure. Now I'm actually currently at that point in my running life, in my running routine, where I, I actually crave the feeling. I don't know if anybody can relate to that. You may think I'm crazy, but I actually am at that point where like, I want to go on a run because I know how good it feels. Now, it is work in terms of my heart pumping and my muscles moving and my lungs laboring, but I can tell you it is not slavish, painful labor that I'm doing to try to earn something. I count it a joy to be able to go on a run. Like I said, some of you think that's crazy. All you feel when you go on a run is a burning throat and a pounding heart and sore legs. And you say, I want nothing to do with any of this. But I believe it can be like this as a Christian. Take Paul, for example. Paul is able to rejoice in prison. How many of you think you would be able to rejoice in your sufferings in prison? Paul is able to rejoice in prison. Why? Because he views his circumstances essentially as God's megaphone for the gospel to reach the entire Roman Empire through the imperial guard. He sees it as works that God has prepared in advance for him to walk in for his joy. He's experiencing the grace of walking in God's foreordained work. But a Christian who is not given to the regular diet and exercise of feeding on the bread of God's word or walking by his spirit, the Christian who is not in regular company of other spirit-filled Christians, the Christian whose delight is not in God or the things of God will feel, feel that even the smallest work is a very painful Exercise. 
Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that this life that God has called you to by making you alive in Christ, by demonstrating his resurrection power at work in you, this work that he has called you to, this is intended to be for our joy. He has prepared them beforehand for us to walk in them, not so that we would be miserable here on earth in order to one day be happy in heaven, but for our joy even now. Listen to Psalm 119.1. How David begins this masterpiece psalm, Psalm 119. Blessed, happy, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. What then is the relationship between our faith and our works? Well, as we've said, works cannot, works do not earn or merit your salvation in any way. Be, un, be absolutely clear on that. Works do not earn or merit your salvation in any way. Works do not somehow or in any way secure God's grace for you. Works, rather, are the gracious gift of God to all who are by his grace, his workmanship. Works are the gracious gift of God to all who trust him with their lives to be able to experience the power of Christ at work in you. We are not saved by our works, but being saved, we are invited to participate in the glorious works of God, which he has given us in advance to walk in. So in closing, let's make sure we have the order all straight here. Salvation is the gracious work of God alone. By grace, you have been saved. This is the gift of God. It's not by works. It's not from yourselves. Number two, the way that we receive that salvation, that free gift of salvation, is through faith in Jesus. Trusting the giver of the gift with our lives. Not merely believing, not merely thinking that He's good for you, but actually trusting him with your life. And number three, saving faith cannot help but lead to doing the works God has prepared for us to do. Now, are you trusting in Christ today? Are you that new creation that lives to please him? Do you love him? Do you love his word? Does it bother you to know if you sin against him? Do you long to be holy like him? Do you trust him? I hope you do. Or I hope you will. Because in this, there is an unconquerable joy that we get to work out day after day for the rest of our lives and all eternity. And Christian brother or sister who may be at this moment in your life, you may feel like you are holding back a little bit, like you have one foot in the world and one foot that's just kind of barely keeping contact with Christ. 
Know that you are fooling yourself if you somehow think that this is leading to your thriving. Paul would urge us to walk in a manner that is worthy of his calling today. You are his workmanship, created in Christ for the awesome privilege of being able to do the things that he has called you to do. If that is something that excites you, that's because he has made you alive in Christ.